My dear brothers and sisters, we serve a God that is very familiar with the scattered church. If you look back, the book of Acts, you look throughout the first century, you look throughout the, the life of the early church, there was much scattering. They spent a whole lot more time gathered in homes under the dark of night than they ever did in large sanctuaries like this. So I pray that it's not a discouragement to you that you're gathered where you're gathered while this, this small group is gathered here, while your neighbors are gathered down the street. I pray that you feel like the church, wherever God has found you, wherever God has you at this stage in your life. I pray that you feel like the church, and I pray that you're acting as the church. I pray that you're using this time to build up those within your household, to spur them on. God has gifted you. God has made it very clear in his word that he has gifted each and every one of us given us the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up the church. And I pray that you're doing that right there in your home. So for the last three months, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of all the Gospels, the most fast pace of all the Gospels. Immediately is the key word all the way throughout the book of Mark. He never allows your eyes to fixate on any one story too long. He doesn't really dive deeply into the things that Jesus taught. Just picture after picture after picture as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, proves that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one that they had been waiting for for so very long. And so when we finished, when we finished last week, we had come to the end of just an absolutely crazy day in the life of Jesus Christ. The day began with him preaching in the synagogue, as was his pattern. And it ended with him there in Peter's home, surrounded by all the sick and all those that were oppressed by demons. And he just healed them all. He just healed them all. He didn't make them fill out a form. He didn't make them prove their pedigree. He didn't make them say some magic words. He just healed them all. And then the very next morning, before sunup, before the sun even rose in the sky, we find Jesus there alone with his father. He had just spent 24 days making one thing, 24 hours, excuse me, making one thing very, very clear. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'm going to make all that which crashed at the fall, physical illness, spiritual oppression, everything which came crumbling down at the fall of man, I'm going to make it all right. And he just gave him a taste, just a picture, just, just, just a little bitty foretaste of what it was that was going to come in all eternity when he arrived the next time, not as a suffering servant, but as a triumphant king. And so the next morning he wakes up after that crazy day. He wakes up before the sun comes up and he goes out to be alone with his father and pray, as was his pattern. Because Jesus in his humanity, yes, he is fully God, but he's also fully man. And in his humanity, he desperately needed time with the Father. He needed his Father to reveal his will. He needed his Father to strengthen him for the day. He needed his Father to encourage him and to build him up. And he needed time alone with his Father. More desperately than he needed anything else this earth had to offer to him. And so we find him there, as was his pattern, alone with his Father. And his followers wake up the next morning. They find him gone. And you can imagine the panic. I imagine that they all probably slept together there in Peter's house. Imagine they had a big sleep over there and they were just wiped out from the night before and then everybody else wakes up and they find that Jesus is gone and you can imagine their panic. What, what are you doing, Jesus? Why have you left us? There's a lot of activity here. There's a lot more to, do. There's a lot more to be done. Why would, you, why would you pull back? And so you can hear the, the exclamation in their voice as they tell him, everybody's looking for you. You've got these people eating out of your hand, Jesus, and if you're going to use them to usher in your kingdom, you've got to go back and you've got to give them more of what they want. And you can imagine as Jesus just, he kind of looks past them because he doesn't even answer their concerns. He doesn't really even address the thing that they're saying. You can imagine him though as he just kind of 
He just kind of looks past them and he says, look, let's go on to the next towns so I can preach the gospel there too. For this is why I came. These guys, they, they thought for sure that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to rally the troops. And they looked around them and they, and they see the troops rallying. He thought for sure that he was going to build an army. And so he, they look around and they see as he's healing these people. They didn't yet fully understand that the reason that Jesus had come, the reason he was performing these miracles was for the sake of the gospel. That Jesus was going to go and he was going to proclaim the gospel and it is evidence that that gospel was real and it's evidence that he was in fact the son of God, the promised Messiah, he was healing. He was cleansing people of demons. But ultimately, it wasn't just about this temporary healing. It wasn't just about chasing out a few demons. It was about showing that he is the Christ so that he could go and proclaim the gospel because he is the gospel. These guys didn't yet understand that. And so he has to tell them at this moment, no, listen, this is why I've come. This is why I've come to preach the gospel. So we're going to return to that text this morning. We're going to return to the 40th, uh, 40th verse in the first chapter of Mark. I would encourage you, if you're there in your home, to stand to your feet. Get at your Bible if you've got it nearby. Perhaps look at it on your phone. But I would encourage you to stand to your feet in the reverence of reading of God's word as we return to the first chapter in Mark, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he made him clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer of your, for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. All God's people said, Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your word. It is our prayer, Father, that you would now speak to us in this word. That in it you would show us yourself. That you would show us ourself. That you would mercifully show us our Savior. That you would make this book live to me. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So we don't know the exact timing of what this morning's text has brought us to. and We don't know exactly what town Jesus was in, but we can only assume that he's doing exactly what he had told his disciples he would do. We can only assume that he is going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, because what Jesus was doing was bringing this gospel message first to the Jews, first to the people of God. And this makes absolute sense because for over a thousand years, God had been preparing these people for this moment. God had been preparing his people to be available and ready and in anticipation of the gospel message which Jesus, Jesus now taught to them. Think about it now. On the night of the Passover, as God called his people out of Egypt, he had told them, I'm sending my angel through. And this angel is going to come through and it's going to strike down the firstborn of all of Egypt. Of the Egyptians, of the Jews, of the foreigners, even of the livestock. My angel is going to come because the penalty for sin is death and you're all a bunch of sinners. You are all deserving of death. But I love you. I've chosen you. And as my chosen people, I'm giving you this instruction that you should take a lamb and that you should bring that lamb into your house. That lamb should spend time with your family. That then on the 14th day of that month, you're going to slaughter that lamb. You're going to take the uh, blood of that lamb. You're going to paint it on your doorposts, on the crossbeam. And as a result of that, when my angel of death passes through, he will pass over your home. You will live and you will not die because of this innocent, perfect substitute. This lamb that has done no wrong, because of him, because of his death, because of his blood being painted on your door, you will be saved. 
And then as he led them there into the wilderness and giving them the law and giving them the sacrifices and giving them the, the festivals and then eventually in sending the prophets for out a thousand years over and over and over again, God had been pointing his people forward to this very moment. Generation after generation, century after century. If there was ever a people more perfectly poised to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was the Jews. It was God's people. And so it only made sense then that Jesus would go to the synagogues first with this message. And that's what he did. He goes throughout, of, throughout all of Galilee and northern Israel. And it's there that he's preaching in these synagogues. These people had the background. They had the backstory. They had the preparation. They should have recognized that this was the Christ, the Son of God. And yet they, just like we, were so blinded by our sin. So blinded by our own anticipations, our own ideas of the way that God should work. And so we don't know, again, exactly what town Jesus was in. We don't know what day it is, but we do know one thing, that a leper came to him. We're introduced to a new character, a leper. We've met Andrew and Peter and James and John. We've met Peter's mother-in-law. We've met the, the guy possessed by the demon. And now we meet a new guy here in Jesus' life, and he's a leper. Now we hear the word leper, and immediately some thoughts come to us. But for most of us, we've never really con come into contact with somebody that had the disease of leprosy. And so it's very difficult for us in today's context Perhaps it's easier today than it was a week ago. Perhaps it's easier today than it was a month ago. But it's, it's difficult for us to understand exactly the depth of what that, meant, that, what that word meant. For somebody to be a leper, for somebody to be diagnosed with leprosy, it carried incredible weight. Today we recognize leprosy by another name. We often call it Hansen's disease. Named after the Norwegian doctor, a guy named Gerard Hansen, in the late 19th century, he discovered what it was that caused leprosy. So we, we refer to it now as Hansen's disease after this doctor. And what he found out was that it's by a bacterial infection. It's this bacterial infection that seeps into people's, into people's body that it can, it can lead to the loss of extremities. It can even lead to death in some of the more extreme cases. And so... This bacteria can be transferred by, by spit, by saliva, even by, by breathing too much of the air around somebody. But as you spend time around somebody that has leprosy, you yourself can catch leprosy. And then as this bacteria takes effect, generally it'll, it'll pop up with white spots, pink spots or white spots on your skin. And, and the bacteria will then it will affect your eyes, it will affect your, your, your organs, it will affect your vocal cords. So that people with leprosy, sometimes they have a very gravelly voice, a very hard to listen to voice. You'll see that in the movies sometimes when you come into contact with lepers. Oftentimes, leprosy could take between a year and 20 years to even show itself. You know, we freak out about coronavirus, the fact that it can take a few days before you find out that you're sick or you may never find out. You could be walking around with leprosy for up to 20 years before it shows any signs at all. But then when it does, again, you would see these, these blotchy spots. You would see these signs. And then, and then eventually what would happen is you would lose feeling. You would lose the ability to feel pain. Now, that sounds like a blessing, that you would no longer feel pain, that you would no longer feel when you've hurt yourself. But we need to remember that pain is a gift from God. Pain is a gracious gift from God. Pain is our body's way of telling us that something's wrong. Pain is our body's way of telling us, hey, stop doing that. You're doing damage to us. So that what would happen is, as these people lost their sense of pain, they would continue to do things like stick their hands under scalding water, like having sores that they would continue to claw at. So that what you would find is that as these people would lose, they would lose their fingertips or they would lose the end of their nose or they would lose entire parts of their body, that generally what happened was there was something that was relatively minor, but it went untreated because they didn't feel the pain. They would continue to rub it. Think about when you go to the dentist's office and they numb your cheek. And you go home and you begin to chew on your cheek, not feeling the pain. Or you bite down a couple of times and you don't feel anything. Everything's okay. But then the next morning you wake up and realize you got chopped beef in your mouth. It's a real problem. For these people, they never felt that pain. And so that much of the destruction that you saw in their life, much of the, much of the decay and the, 
kind of just a wasting away of things, was actually self-imposed. Yes, there was potentially some uh, shortening of the bones, and there was, some, there was some flesh rot that would often take place, but much of what happened, it was just self-imposed because they couldn't feel pain the way God had designed them to feel pain. And so along with that, along with these open sores and along with this rotting flesh would come a smell, a stench. So much so that people would stay sometimes hundreds of yards away from these guys, not just because they were afraid to catch a disease, but just because of the smell. It was just a, just a smell of rotting flesh that would accompany these people wherever they go. I hope you hadn't eaten breakfast yet. So these people were there. Jokes don't work when there's nobody here. I hope somebody at home, somebody at home laughed. But so these, that these people were, they were just such, such outcasts that, that people would stay away from them because in Israel at that time, even for a leper to sit beneath a tree or even for a leper to enter a house was to make that house unclean or was to make that make that tree unclean so that people would just made a wide berth around lepers they would have seen them coming down the road and they would have stayed away the jewish historian josephus he says that the leper was in no way different from a dead man often rabbis would refer to these people as the walking dead they looked like zombies they looked like dead people they smelled like dead people and in addition to that there was no known cure for leprosy so the idea of healing somebody cleansing somebody from leprosy it was tantamount to raising somebody from the dead only god could do such a thing so they would refer to these people just like they were corpses so when we look in the when we look in the scriptures we'll see in greek the word lepros or we'll see in hebrew the word serat that just means scaly it's an idea for any kind of any kind of scaly disease so it wasn't just this most intense stage of leprosy that we recognize today as Hansen's disease it could be any number of diseases any number of skin diseases or rashes or anything that comes upon a man's upon a man's body and makes him scaly so what would happen is if you look in the book of Leviticus Leviticus 13 you'll find that leprosy was apparently a pretty common problem that leprosy was running rampant that lots of people had it so much so that the entire 13th chapter of the book of Leviticus is dedicated to identifying and dealing with leprosy so that what happened was when somebody was found to have some kind of scaly condition, some kind of evidence that they may in fact be a leper, they had to go to the priest because Israel is a theocracy. It's a nation that is run by God through his representatives, in this case, the priests. So that the priests were the ones that had to determine whether or not this person was actually sick. So that if someone was suspected to have leprosy, they went to the priest. And this is what Leviticus 13, 1 through 3 says. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons, the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair of the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. So for 59 verses in the book of Leviticus, right there in the 13th chapter, God just unveils for these people ways that you can determine whether or not somebody in fact has a leprous disease, whether in fact what this guy is dealing with is true leprosy, so that the priest could then make an accurate description, can make an accurate um, recommendation about how to handle this guy. Because here's the thing, to be found with leprosy was an incredibly serious thing. So they needed to make sure that if somebody did have leprosy, that they were accurately diagnosed. If they didn't, that they weren't inaccurately diagnosed, again, because the consequences were dire. Look at Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. It says this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone, and he shall dwell outside the camp. 
that according to God's word, what would happen is when a person was found to be unclean with leprosy, it was commanded to them that they would make themselves as detestable as possible. Not only were they stinky with rotten skin, not only were they potentially losing limbs, not only could they could not feel pain, but they were to make themselves even more detestable so that as they walked up and down the street, people would know exactly who they were and exactly what they were dealing with. And that they would make a wide path around them. And then they had to yell out to people, unclean, unclean, stay away, so that nobody could ever come close enough to them for a hug, for a handshake, even a kind word. That people would stay way away from these, from these lepers. That was the way that God, had, that God had designed this. This was more than just a diagnosis. This was a sentence. This was a sentence to a life of loneliness. Away from town, away from your family, away from your friends. These people couldn't even come into the cities. They couldn't come into the temple to worship. They couldn't come there to offer sacrifices. Essentially, when you were found to have leprosy, you were a complete and total outcast, destined for a life of nothing but solemn, lonely solitude. It's a big deal. I don't know that we have anything in today's age that, that closely mirrors this. You think about even what we're dealing with right now. I've, I've, heard, from, I've heard from people in Japan that, that perhaps there's this, um, there's this real stigma, more so even than here, that comes upon people in parts of Asia that when they're found to have the coronavirus, that they're, that they're shunned and that they're pushed aside and that they're, they're, made to be, they're made to be outcasts, social outcasts. But you think about the way that people are treated here with even the most scary of diseases. We put our full resources behind them, the doctors and the nurses, and everybody comes and cares for them, and their loved ones are able to have contact with them. This wasn't the case. This wasn't the case. And so we've got to ask ourselves, why did God demand that his people deal so harshly with lepers? Yes, it was a contagious disease, and yes, certainly God didn't want this thing to spread throughout all his people, but why so harsh? Why did he cause them to make themselves so detestable? Why did he cause them to go and live off in the wilderness so lonely like this? What would have been his purpose? What is the purpose behind the ceremonial law, these laws that determine a man to be clean or unclean? And for much of my life, when I thought about the ceremonial laws, I thought that they were all about God making certain that his people lived happy, healthy, long lives. What I did was I took the ceremonial law and I made it just like everything else in this world. I made it all about man. I turned God into some kind of nanny, that his job, that his existence was all about making sure that we live long, happy lives. But ultimately, we know that's just not the case. The ceremonial laws, every other aspect of the law, just like all the rest of this universe, it's all about God. It's all about God. And that in God's law, even his ceremonial laws, what God is doing is he's revealing himself to us. He's showing us his holiness. He's taking these instances where men are outwardly unclean, and he's pointing us towards the filthiest within our hearts. He's showing us his hatred for sin. He's showing us how completely and totally incompatible sin is with the kingdom of God. He's putting this on display through things like leprosy. That's why when he makes these laws about how you can eat a lamb, but you can't eat a pig, about how once you have a baby, you've got to stay away for seven plus 33 days, and you've got to take these baths, that ultimately what he's showing is that we're to be a separate people. We're to be a different people. And then these outwardly unclean things, they're to represent the, unclean, the uncleanliness of our hearts, and we're to show to the world, and we're to show to each other how much God hates sin, and how sin can have nothing to do with him, and sin can have no place within his kingdom. And in the case of leprosy, we see absolutely how this is, this is just manifest. That the outward appearance of this guy really does match what a heart of sin looks like. So as we take the leper and we put him away into the wilderness, as we stay clear from him, as we make him look as detestable as possible on the outside, the Lord is, is, is proclaiming to all the world, I am this radically holy. You as my people 
are to be this radically holy, terrifyingly holy. That all sin is to be as detestable to you as a leper walking down the road. That you are to run from sin the same way you would run from a leper were to walk into your path. That is how holy God is. And that is a picture of how holy he has called his people to be. That's what he's doing here in these ceremonial laws. That we're to flee from sin just like this. But at the same time, what he's showing us is that no matter how hard we try, at some point or another, we ourselves are going to be found unclean. The leper didn't do anything to cause himself to be unclean. Neither does the woman that goes through her normal menstrual cycle or has a baby. Neither does a man that has a boil that pops up on his arm. What he's showing us through these ceremonial laws is, despite all your best efforts, at some point, it is in your nature to be unclean, just as it is with sin. That in our nature, our inherited nature from our father Adam, we will all stumble into sin. Now, this isn't the way that God designed it. It was not his design for death and decay and leprosy to come upon man, just as it wasn't his design for us to be sinful. And yet at the fall, it became a part of our nature. So that every single one of us, we see in these laws, we see in the severity with which God treats those that are unclean, what we see is no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we too will stumble into this. We don't have it in ourselves to remain clean. We don't have it in ourselves to remain perfect. And at the same time, we're to hate this uncleanliness. We're to hate this sin. God is showing for us here the drastic gulf that exists between him as the perfectly holy and righteous creator of the earth and us as fallen men. That's what he's showing in leprosy. That's what he's showing all throughout his ceremonial laws. Add to this the fact that for many in Israel, they view leprosy as a curse from God, a direct punishment from God. You read in the Old Testament, there are these times when God would send leprosy upon someone as a punishment. Think about Miriam, Moses' sister, as, as, as they're rebelling against Moses. And what happens? She looks down and, and her skin turns white and leprous. And so not only do these people have to walk around with the loneliness of knowing that they can't be touched, they can't be hugged, they can't be loved, they can't even walk into the cities, but in addition to that, they're walking around with the shame of people looking at them as if they themselves are evil. You'll read about it through the, through the historical books, not, not in the Bible, but through historians' works. You'll read that it wasn't uncommon for rabbis to brag about the fact that they spit at lepers as they walked down the street or that they would throw stones and throw rocks at lepers because they assumed you've deserved this. Think about Job as he sat there in the ashes, right? He had the boils that popped up. What did his buddies tell him? Surely you've done something to cause this. So for many in Israel, they would have looked at this leper and they would have thought, surely he did something, or at very least his parents did something. Very evil to cause this leprosy to come upon him. Now the good Dr. Luke, he tells us that this man was full of leprosy. This was a bad case of leprosy. This wasn't minor. This wasn't something that could have been hidden. He was full of leprosy. Perhaps he was missing a finger, a toe, a foot, a nose. He would have been tattered with his hair down. He wasn't allowed to come into the cities. This was a bad case of leprosy that this man had as he comes to Jesus. He was forbidden to go anywhere in any, any towns. He couldn't have hid this thing. They would have smelled him. They would have seen him. He would have, been, he would have been demanded that he walked around calling himself unclean. And yet, we see that he approaches Jesus. And Luke's gospel it tells us specifically that Jesus was in a city. And that there within that city, this leper, he breaks the rules. He breaks the rules. Not only does he come into a city, but he approaches other people because he had nothing to lose. He had no friends. He had no family. He was only allowed to hang out with other lepers so that if he were to come into the city, if he were to approach Jesus, and as a result of this, he was to die, he would have counted that as a relief from his pain. He wasn't afraid to die. He had nothing to lose. And so we see here that he comes up to Jesus. The walking dead comes up to Jesus. The leopard came to him. Leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you will, 
you can make me clean. Now, Matthew says that he bowed down. Luke says that he laid down on his face. And both of those Gospels, they also tell us that he referred to Jesus as Lord. So we see this posture of submission that this leper has as he comes before Jesus and he bows down low and he calls him Lord. Now, we don't know whether this is some, this, this is some, some great statement about his understanding that Jesus was the Christ. There was, it wouldn't have been uncommon, given this leper's position in society, it wouldn't have been uncommon for him to show, I mean no harm, as he bows down. I'm not going to come any closer than this, as he bows down. And, and it is uncommon for a man to refer to another man as Lord during that time, just like sir. But I think, based on the fact that we know that people knew who Jesus was, if you remember back in Mark 1.28, it says this, that Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout Galilee and the surrounding areas. But surely this leper, along with every other within 20 or 30 or 40 miles, they had heard about Jesus. They had heard about his ability. And so it seems very likely that this man did, in fact, come to Jesus recognizing you are the Messiah. He may not have understood everything that that meant, but he at very least understood that he was a man sent from heaven to heal. Only God could heal leprosy. So he certainly knew that this guy was something different. And then you see the way that he speaks to him. He says, if you will, make me clean. There's no pretension here. He's not naming. He's not claiming. He's not demanding. He's not presuming upon the grace of God. He's saying, if you will, you can make me clean. He knows that he has no grounds to demand anything from God. He's got nothing to lose, but he's got nothing to, nothing to hold over God. He's got nothing to hold over Jesus' head and say, you must do this thing for me. He says, if you will, you will make me clean. Notice he uses the word clean there and not healed. Every single time Jesus comes into contact with a leper and he heals them, it uses the word cleansed. In part, because leprosy was so closely tied with the idea of sin, the idea of being cleansed. Yes, he was going to heal him physically, but it's also this picture of being cleansed, of being washed, of being made right, of being made new. So you notice that he uses the word here, cleansed. You'll also notice that the man doesn't even really make a request. He doesn't speak to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to make me clean. He doesn't say, Jesus, will you make me clean? Again, he just falls down on his face, says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus, I've heard what you've done for other people. I know that you are a healer sent from God at very least, perhaps the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. But I know that you can. I know that you have the authority. I've heard what you've done for other people. And if you want to, you can do the same thing for me. Is that the way you approach God? Trusting in his abilities. Trusting that he's going to do what is right. Trusting that he will do that which glorifies him. I wish I could say that I did, but I don't. I spend most of my time in prayer advising God. Not only telling God what I want, but telling him how he's supposed to deliver it. And then pouting when he doesn't do it the way I've demanded. I don't spend any time falling down on my face and just recognizing the goodness of God and what God can do. I give God parameters. God, not only must you heal me, but you must heal me by this time. You must heal me in this way. You must make sure I suffer no more loss than this. And that's not what we see. We see this beautiful picture of this man falling down on his face with nothing to lose. Perhaps that's what we're missing. Perhaps we've got too much to lose. Perhaps we'd feel too sufficient in our own state. Perhaps because we believe that we somehow belong in the kingdom of God and this man knew that he had no place even amongst his own people. Perhaps that's what drives him to this position. Perhaps God needs to take some things away from us. Perhaps he needs to knock us down to size. Perhaps we need to find ourselves as outcasts like a leper before we're willing to really come to him and submit the way that this man did. It's a beautiful picture of the way that we're intended to approach the throne. Verse 41 Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and he touched him, and he said to him, I will be clean. Of all the synoptics, only Mark tells us 
the, the driving force, the reason why Jesus heals this man. Now, ultimately, everything that he did, he did for the glory of God. He did for the sake of the kingdom. Again, we, we talked about the fact that he did this to show the fact that he truly is the son of God and that his gospel message is true. But we also see here that he was driven by pity. And now, the word there also can mean anger. The word that's used there can also mean anger. And surely Jesus wasn't angry at this man. Surely Jesus wasn't angry at the man for approaching him or for having the leprosy. seems to me what happened was Jesus is angry about the consequences of sin. He's angry about the fall of man. He's angry about what he sees around him. But it says here that he had compassion, that he had pity for this man, that ultimately he was going to heal for the glory of God, but at the same time he was driven by a compassion and a pity for a man that was such a complete and total outcast, whose body was falling apart before him. Now Jesus could have healed him with just a word. He did that. Sometimes he didn't have to lay eyes on the people. Think about the centurion's servant. Jesus just said a word, and the, and the man's servant was healed. But in the case, case here, he doesn't just do that. It says that he reached out his hand. In fact, it says that he stretched out his hand. Kind of, you, you see these instances in Scripture, where, where you, this picture of God reaching out his hand over all creation. He was creating something new. He wasn't just healing this man. He wasn't just stopping the disease. He was making him new. He was making him fresh, completely and totally healing him. Now, this wasn't an advisable thing to reach out your hand and touch a leper. Leviticus 5.3 says that for a man to reach out and to touch a leper or anything that was unclean would make he himself clean, but Jesus wasn't going to become unclean. The uncleanliness of this man didn't jump off of him and onto Jesus. What happened was this man became clean himself as Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him. And it says here in verse 42, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus was Peter's mother-in-law and everybody else that came to Jesus. Jesus doesn't heal halfway. It isn't a slow process over time. Jesus says to be healed and you are healed. He reaches out his hand to touch and you are healed. When you intersect the Son of God, when your life intersects the Son of God, when he comes into your life, he reaches out his hand and he touches you, you are completely and totally and utterly healed. Now, in our case, it's not always physical healing. We know that. We spent much time. I've taken much care to make sure you recognize that there is no promise in God's word that you're going to be healed physically like this leper would. And by the way, the leper died eventually. But spiritually... You are made whole completely. You are made right with God completely in the moment where Jesus intersects your life, reaches out his hand, and he touches you. The man was clean. Verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses demanded for a proof to them. So he's telling him, sternly charging him. The word there is snort. Like he snorted through, like almost gritted through his teeth. See to it that you don't tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody about what I've just done. This is so opposite of what his disciples wanted, wasn't it? Jesus, you can make a name for yourself here. You can heal lepers. Nobody can do that. Only God can do that. Why don't you want this man to go out and tell everybody what it is that you've done? And yet, over and over again throughout Scripture, we see that that's Jesus' pattern. He'd heal somebody and he'd tell them, shh, don't tell anybody. Now, in part, we know that this is because it wasn't yet time. He wasn't yet ready to pursue the cross. It wasn't time for him to push and to, and to really force the issue as he pursued himself, as he pushed toward the cross. But in addition to that, I believe that the reason he told this leper to be quiet was because he knows the heart of men. The same heart that, that would cause the people to try to make him king, the same heart that would cause the people to chase, chase him around the lake, around the Sea of Galilee, after he had fed the 5,000 and demand more food. He knows that the hearts of men drive them to a place where they see Jesus as a means to an end. They see the things that he can do, and they want more of that. They don't see Jesus as a savior to be submitted to, as a Lord to be obeyed, as the Christ to be cherished. They see him as a way to get free stuff. And he knew that as this message was to travel, that people were going to come. 
They were all going to want this healing. Now understand that Jesus had not yet come to heal everybody. You understand there is a day when Jesus is going to return and everyone will be healed. But when that day comes, there is no more time for salvation. The time for repentance is over. That when that moment comes that Jesus returns, there will be millions, perhaps billions of souls cast into hell for all eternity. That it's only through his grace and his mercy that he delays his coming. That he delays completely and totally wiping out all sickness and all illness. That wasn't what he had come for in this moment. Again, this was a foretaste of heaven. This was a foretaste of eternity. There were these moments of healing to prove that he was the Christ and to bring glory to God. But he hadn't come at this moment to make everybody right. But he knew that's what everybody was going to want. They were going to miss his gospel message for the sake of some bread. For the sake of healing a scaly disease on them. And so he told the man, don't go tell anybody. He snorts at him. Say, see to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. He sends them away to a priest. Now, there was a couple of options here. Either the man could have traveled the 90 miles down to Jerusalem and gone to the temple, or he could have seen one of the other 20,000 priests that was living throughout Israel. You see, the way the system was set up was this, that each priest was divided into one of these 24 groups of priests. And each of those 24 groups... They would spend one week, two times per year, serving in the temple. So it's two weeks that they would have been there serving in the temple, plus during the other festivals. The rest of the time, they were free to go back to their hometowns. They were free to travel. They were free to work in other ways as scribes or magistrates or judges. So this man, he was to go and find a priest somewhere. Either go to Jerusalem or go to one of the priests that's surrounding you here. And it, that it's only the priest that can declare you as, as clean. And that there's this process that would have taken several days. It would have included probably shaving the man's hair, maybe even his eyebrows. It would have included taking some, some ritual baths, going away for a few days, and then coming back. Because again, to be found unclean, this is like winning the lottery. They're not just going to hand this out because things appeared to get a little bit better. And so over a course of days, he would have gone and seen a priest, shown that he was in fact clean, and then Jesus tells him to go and offer a gift, offer the gift that Moses commanded. So what we see is that in the book of Leviticus, is that what Moses commanded for those that had been found clean was that they were, to, they were to make an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. That one of the things he was to do was to take a bird. He was to take two birds, actually. And he was to kill the one bird over a basin of clean water. He was to then take the other bird, dip him in that blood, and allow him to fly away. Sounds a lot like the story of the scapegoat, right? From the Day of Atonement. Then in addition to that, he was to take three lambs, and he was to sacrifice those three lambs. That one was to be a burnt offering, one was to be a guilt offering, one was to be a sin offering. They, they were to offer these things. Again, showing how this uncleanliness ties so closely with sin. This picture, God painting the picture and paving the way for the preparation of these people to see Jesus. So Jesus tells them here to go do this. Jesus was making clear to this leper, to his followers, and to the priests that he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. That he didn't detest the law. You remember, Jesus already cleansed the temple at one point here. So it would have been easy for these people to say, well, Jesus hates the law. And, and, and Jesus doesn't honor the law. And Jesus is teaching something different than Moses. And he's proving to them here that that's not the case. He's affirming his love for the law. But I want you to notice something here. The law couldn't make the leper clean. Only God could cleanse the leper. Only God could heal the leper. What the law could do was could recognize the people that were unclean. The law gave the people a way for recognizing who was tainted. Who was, who was made unclean by this leprous disease. That the purpose for the law was not to, clean, to cleanse people. It was just to recognize that which God had done. The sickness that had fallen upon man, and then the healing work that God had done. So as people went and they showed themselves to the priests, they would have seen the work that God had done in this man's life. That they couldn't make the man clean. 
I told you earlier that I didn't, I didn't know the timing of this story. I don't know exactly when this happened, but if, if you look at where it falls in Matthew's gospel, what's happened is it may have come right after the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus had gone up onto the mountain and he has, t- he has taught there, and then he comes down and he heals this man. Can't help but remind you about the time when Moses goes up the mountain and he meets, from God, meets with God. And when he comes back down, what he brings with him isn't, isn't healing, he brings the law, a way to know that you're sick. I can't help but think that that's part of what God's doing here. Listen, this story is not an allegory. The purpose behind what's happening in the life of this leper, it's not to make some other point. It's about Jesus showing himself to be the Christ. We see that when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends word. And he says to, to his disciples, he says, guys, would you go find Jesus and ask him, is he the one we've been waiting on or should we wait for another? And Luke 7, Jesus says this, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. He's telling these disciples of John the Baptist, listen, I'm doing these things, now you go tell John what I've done so that he can know I'm the Christ. That's the purpose of this story, but I can't help but think that there's an undertone here showing a difference in the authority, a difference in the power, how much greater Jesus is than the law, how much greater Jesus is than the prophets, how much greater Jesus is than the priests, that they can recognize uncleanliness, They can recognize sin. They can help you to recognize uncleanliness and sin in your life. But ultimately, it's only God who cleans. It's only God who heals. It's only God who saves. He's putting that on display for these people. And he tells them, go to the priest. He says, as a proof to them. A proof to who? And proof of what? seems obvious to me that it's a proof for the priests. That the same message he was sending to John the Baptist, he's sending to the priests. So as the man showed up there and the people said, well, how'd you get clean? Or perhaps he just told them because he was so excited. I'm clean because I intersected Jesus. I met Jesus. Jesus touched me and now I'm clean. You send this message to them. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I'm the one with the authority to heal. I am the one that raises the dead. I'm the one that doesn't become unclean when I come into contact with uncleanliness. I am the one. Send that message to them. So that's why he sends them to the priest. To show that he in fact has this power. He has this authority. Because you'll notice as you look throughout all the Gospels, Of all the claims that the religious leaders bring against Jesus, they never doubt his power. They call him a blasphemer. They say that he disregards the Sabbath. They say that he teaches some strange things. They say that he claims to be the Son of God. But they never doubt his power. The best thing they can do is they can say that he does it by the power of Beelzebub. That he heals, that he performs these miracles in the powers of Satan. Because it was so undeniable, the power that Jesus had. That's why it's so silly today when people talk about the fact that Jesus must have just been a good teacher. He must have just been a great religious leader. Even the people that wanted to shut him down couldn't doubt his power. He did things that only God could do. And so the best they could come up with is say, well, you must have done it in the name of Satan. That nobody living at that time in that world could possibly doubt the power of Jesus. And so that's the message he's sending to him. Yes, I do have that kind of power. Yes, I do have that kind of authority. Verse 45. But he went out. This is the leper. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the town. But he was in desolate places. And people were coming to him for every corner. Gee whiz, I just bragged on this dude about how good a job he did in approaching Jesus. About how he just painted this perfect, perfect picture of submission in approaching Jesus. And then the minute he gets healed, what does he do? He turns around and disobeys. Sound familiar? Completely walks away and disregards what Jesus has just told him to do. Now listen, I get it. You're excited. Who knows how long this man's been living with this disease? Who knows how lonely? He's excited. He wants to tell people the work that God has done in his life. There would have been nothing wrong with that except God told him not to do it. Jesus had told him, don't do this. 
You need to go to the priest right now. And instead it says that he went. Not only did he go, but it says that he didn't just go to one person. He didn't just go to his family. He was talking about it freely, just running up and down the road, yelling to everybody. I met Jesus and Jesus healed me. And Jesus was Peter's mother-in-law. Word spreads fast. If there's one thing that the people in Israel are good at, it's spreading stories. It's making sure that news travels fast. And news traveled fast about this, just like it did in Capernaum when Jesus had healed there. News traveled fast, so much so that Jesus couldn't even enter a town, that the town that would just be overrun with people. This leper, he had made a serious, serious mess. He had approached Jesus with the absolute perfect attitude, and yet he had walked away in disobedience. But ultimately, the healing of the leper is not about his obedience. It is not about his faith. It is about Jesus. It is about the power of God. It's about the power of his gospel message. He didn't heal this man because he approached him with the right heart. He didn't heal this man because he assumed that he would walk away in, in obedience. That wasn't the picture at all. There were plenty of people. There's, plenty of, there's you, there's you at home. There's plenty of people. There are plenty faithful. And yet God hasn't healed completely. God hasn't taken away your sickness. This wasn't about just the faith of this man. There's plenty of other people that show no faith whatsoever to God in Scripture, and yet God still heals them. You don't think of the people that came to Capernaum, to Peter's house, that some of those were completely unfaithful? The story, this healing, it's not about this man's faith. It's all about Jesus. It's about the work of Jesus. And look at what happens to Jesus as a result. Look at the role reversal. This man that was an outcast, this man that could not enter the city because of his leprous disease, he is now free to go wherever he wants. And Jesus can no longer enter cities because of the crowds. It says here he could not go into the towns because the town would be overrun because of the groups that came upon him. So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him. I'm not saying he never went to a city again, but you need to see this picture. That when he went into a town, people would, he couldn't walk in openly and freely because people would, would flock to him and they would overrun the town. It was a problem here. So you see, this, you see this role reversal that happens in the life of this guy. That this man that comes into contact with Jesus with rotten flesh, detestable, an outcast, lonely, unable to worship, unable to go into the temple, unable to go into the cities, his life intersects Jesus Christ. And by his power, not because of the goodness of the man, not because of the faithfulness of the man, not because of the obedience of the man, because of the power of God, because of the power of his gospel message, this man is healed, completely and totally healed because of the compassion of Christ, because he had compassion for this man. He had love for this man. He would, chose to glorify his father by healing this guy so that he could return to the people. That separation was no longer to be a part of his life. Worship could now be a part of his life. So that as Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches this man, and this man disobeys Jesus' commandment. He goes out and spreads this news. Now Jesus is out in the desolate places. Jesus is out in the wilderness. Jesus is having to work out here. Truly a man that has bore our sorrows. Truly a man that has carried the weight of our sin upon him. Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He truly was the suffering servant. So the question for each and every one of us is, do we know this Jesus? Has our life intersected this Jesus? Has the power of God manifest through the Son of God in your life in such a way that you have been made whole, that you have been redeemed, that you have been made right with God, reunited with the people of God? That's the question. That's the only question. As we stand in this season of suffering, as we stand in this season of separation, as we stand in this season of sickness, the question is, are you trusting the only one that can do anything about it? And are you trusting him that if he doesn't heal you completely, physically, the way that he did the leper, do you trust that he is still good? Do you come to him the way the leper comes to him and says, listen, Jesus, if you will, you can. If you will, if it's your desire, we know that you will heal me. If not, I still trust you. 
I still honor you. I still worship you as the one with all power. And I look forward to that day of eternal healing. I look forward to that time when you won't just heal a few, when you won't just heal for a moment, when you won't just heal for a season, that you will heal completely and totally eternally. That's the day that we long for. I pray that in this season, you long for that more than ever. And I pray that it drives you to worship. We're going to continue worshiping here in a moment. And I pray that your heart cries out with anticipation for heaven. Pray that your heart cries out with anticipation for eternity. That in this time of separation, you long to be together with the body around the throne. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are the God who holds all that is, visible and invisible, both in heaven and on earth. You hold it all in your hand. And Father, there is nothing that outstretches your power, your wisdom, your knowledge, or your goodness. So Father, this day is all about you, just as all eternity is meant to be about you, just as all, all creation is meant to be about you. May we never forget that. May we cherish these opportunities to gather, even as we gather in separate places. May we cherish these opportunities to gather together and worship you. Father, may the songs that we sing now be pleasing to your ears. May you be glorified now and forevermore. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.